Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Roberto Patino, who is the showrunner, writer, and executive producer of the series DMZ. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is kind of giving yourself a lot of creative latitude when you're translating material, you know, looking at the source material of the comic books for this. And, you know, Rosario Dawson's character, Alma, also Z in, in the story, is such a great example of this, where you kind of took a character, really kind of like stripped her down and then rebuilt her so that there's essences from the source material, but also really thinking about what works well and what plays well, particularly in this medium and on screen. Um, and was that something that you knew very early on in, in going into developing this material that, that was something that you really needed to do for yourself? And what were some of the other examples of, of spaces where you did that? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was a, I remember when this comic came out in 2005, end of 2005, um, I got it at Newberry Comics uh, and it was chilling. It was chilling. It was, uh, you know, the concept of war in our own backyard was, you know, it kept me up at night and it was uh, both at once chilling, but also you kind of wanted to peek a little further into the world. You kind of wanted to see what different aspects of Manhattan had become, who was operating where, et cetera. And for the comic, they uh, built this narrative device of a photojournalist getting lost in there and being stuck in there. And, you know, he really, the character is Maddie Roth in the, in the comic. He really serves as a proxy for the audience, you know, especially for the first couple of, of issues. He's wandering around. And, and he's getting to know the world just like we're getting to know the world. And it works for that because you want to get to know the world. Um, that, you know, in, in adapting it for television, it didn't, you know, it didn't quite work for me uh, because the, everything was happening to the character. The character was a, a vessel uh, of exposition um, and he, you know, there wasn't a salient need. So on a, on a just kind of a craft level, I really wanted a character that needed something more than anything that we can hook our, you know, hook ourselves into emotionally um, and root for. Um, so that that's the sort of academic answer. Uh, the emotional answer for me was that Z in the comic was to me, hands down the most interesting character. Uh, she, you know, is this fearless woman who regularly puts herself in harm's way to save others. She, you know, has this devil may care attitude. She's cool. Um, you know, she's quick with a, with a, a line and, at the same time, she was woefully underserved. You know, she's, she's uh, you know, essentially a two-dimensional character. And that was something that I kept grappling with as I read issue after issue. I was like, who is this lady? Why, why aren't we talking about her? Um, so I knew that I wanted to focus on Z. I knew that going in. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really just took the guardrails off and, and like you said, rebuilt her from, from the ground up, preserving that essence of who she was. Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of, of the world that you've built within this show, you know, there's, there's reference to the fact that it's been, it's been eight years. It's eight years that she's been traveling around different areas looking for her son. Right. Um, and so it's, it's set in kind of like a very, very near future. And it almost feels like that idea of society on the cusp now. And if all of the disenfranchisement and all of the discord going on and all of the, the fragmentation, you know, really came to a head that that could be a reality in the near future in some right. sort of version. Um, and so with that in mind, with it being eight years, which is a lot of time and not a lot of time and wanting to kind of have that feeling tied mm-hmm. to current society, how did that inform a lot of the world building that you were doing within the scripts? And then also a lot of the, the visual aspects that come with that as well. Right. Well, I mean, I think there is a, a, a certain aspect of this is a show that is set amid a war that is not actually about war. Um, you don't see war in the show. War kind of exists as ghosts in the peripheries. Um, and, you know, I... I really wanted to focus on the DMZ. The show is called DMZ. It's about the people of the DMZ and and really kind of assume the war happened and tell the story of what happens next because that is the thesis of the show. It's the story of people coming together. It's the story of um, a reclamation of self and of land and it really, you know, I, so I, I wanted that distance. Uh, I'm not interested in war. I've never been to war myself. I don't, you know, if you ask 10 different people how we might get to civil war, you'll get 10 different answers. I, for one, don't think we're ever going to get anywhere near civil war. Um, but to me, this show is more of a cautionary tale in so, insofar as it assumes the worst case scenario. And, but what it does in doing that is it elevates the undeniable human resolve that I believe lies at the core of who we are. Um, so that, that's where the eight years came from. And then in terms of the, you know, locations, uh, you know, this is, this is all, imagine a world where, you know, all of the societal sort of pressures or uh, definitions of what is cool uh, are gone, right? You know, self-expression, there is no definition for that. So you have people who, you know, express themselves with their hair, express themselves with what they wear, you know, and they also have access to all of the bougiest stores that have been abandoned, right? So, and, and and, and they're remaking and reinventing with things that have been left behind. Um, so there is, there is a certain degree of cultivating the new out of what's left. Um, and, you know, I, I just really wanted to show a world where, you know, aspects of Manhattan that we all know have become these epicenters for all kinds of people, right? Uh, Spanish Harlem you know, uh, the character played by Benjamin Bratt, Parco Delgado has planted a flag there and that's become a, a pretty Latino community. Um, there's been a, a sort of Pan-Asian uh, uh, neighborhood that's evolved out of the, around the Bowery. Um, there is 
an LGBTQA uh, neighborhood that's that's kind of in the north, uh, in the upper west side. Um, you know, and and I just really wanted to showcase a world where people are actually free. You know, we live in the land of the free, uh, but we have politicians and, and world leaders that are actively trying to strip away our freedoms. Um, but here in this broken land that's been abandoned, the people are truly free to make truly, you know, their own personal decisions in who and how they want to be. Um, so in a lot of ways, the story is about a reclamation of that land. Uh, and like I said, a reclamation of, of you know, identity. Mm-hmm. And, and with that idea of identity and, and looking at who characters become in certain circumstances, you're ringing up um, Benjamin's character, Parco, which is a great example of this, because as we learn more about his backstory and his history, you know, his present day version isn't actually that far removed from who he was, but there's elements that become more heightened because of the society that he's living in and him being someone who, you know, like you said, it's like planted a flag and taken on this leadership role and the Mm -hmm. way that he's choosing to utilize that. Um, And so, so what was the development of a character like that in thinking about who they were before really lending itself to the current, but what are the aspects that are going to evolve or become more heightened or be a little bit different as a result of the external circumstances around them yeah I mean I think part of part of that idea of uh you know reclaiming one's true nature another way of looking at it is you know diving into self-reinvention right and um you know uh Parco is is a character who you know his parents were immigrants uh he came here at a young age and you know grew up in the spirit of service, in the spirit of the can-do American, served his country, and always felt like a second-class citizen. Always felt like he was, you know, just stuck underneath the glass ceiling that was set for him. And now in this new world, he can reinvent himself and he can really kind of assert his authority. You know, I think Parco, Parco thinks, you know, I, I personally believe Parco to be ultimately a, a an optimist, uh, only insofar as your vision of that optimistic future aligns with his. Um, but if he can assert himself with, with enough sort of, you know, bravado and authority, people will listen and, and they have. Um, so he kind of sees this as, I guess, an opportunity to springboard his station and, you know, get, at, get, get a, a real seat at the table um on a global level Mm -hmm. there's also a really great triangulation of characters between parko z and christian and within that it also really allows you to play around with you know where are allegiances happening what is someone going to do who are they doing things for you know and often as an audience we don't necessarily know the answers to those questions and the characters themselves don't always know um you know there's a lot of great moments where we're very unsure what christian's going to do or who he's going to choose to side with um and so did kind of like having that triangle of three characters really allow for a lot of that dynamic in, in kind of like the push and pull between the three of them. That's right. Yeah. I think, you know, ultimately this show is about, is about family. Uh, it's about a woman who uh, comes into the DMZ um, played, by, you know, this woman played by Rosario Dawson who comes into the DMZ to look for her son. Um, and 
to that uh, idea, a lot of what we're playing with um, dramatically is is reconciliation uh, for better and for worse. You know, accountability for um, who who you are as a mother to your son, who you are as a son to your mother. You know, eight years have passed, so it's really easy to get you know, rose tinted glasses on and, and kind of distill everything into a very monochromatic, uh, lovely, woeful, nostalgic sort of way. But a lot of what um, the show is about is coming to grips with wrongs we've done to one another and owning that and, you know, going through that process, that painful process of forgiveness. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I mean, dealing with that sort of triangulated family unit mm-hmm. um, really allowed for that, for sure. And was that that idea that you were just mentioning about the, the wrongs that we've done to other people within these characters, um, a lot of the genesis behind the flashback scenes where we see, you know, Z kind of reminiscing and, and, and having these flashback moments to her son who she's looking for, um, because it wasn't just about the wistful nostalgia in those moments. It was also right. about mistakes and regret um, yes. and, and that journey of forgiveness with herself that she's on as much as she's on a journey of forgiveness and trying to find her son. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. You know, and I think that, that idea goes hand in hand with the ultimate, um, evolutions of their, of each character's journey, which is, you know, from Alma's point of view, I've come in here looking for my son. I've found him. I've been confronted with who I was actually towards him. And that hurts. Uh, but it has also sort of pivoted my scope of purpose here. And I, and, you know, in the show, you know, that's, that's really what it's about. She kind of broadens out um, with this sense of accountability to her son, to a sense of accountability to the people that have, that have been abandoned in the DMZ. Um, It might be worth uh, explaining what a DMZ is. Um, I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, there is, there's a lot, I've been living in this world for the last two and a half years. I take it for granted, but, um, I remember when I, I came home, uh, and told my wife that I have found my new project. She's like, great. What is it? I go, it's DMZ. And she goes, what? Like TMZ DMV. What, what's a DMZ? Uh, so I, I don't basically a DMZ is a plot of land between two warring armies, um, typically, uh, you know, armies that are are adjacent to one another. And both armies have determined that this plot of land will be demilitarized. No military is allowed there. So it's closed off, it's a neutral zone. And uh, in our show, D- the DMZ of our second American Civil War is Manhattan. Um, you know, so we have to the east in Brooklyn and in Queens, the United States, and to the west in New Jersey and beyond the free states of America. Um, so there's the context. 
I really love that. And and one of the other things that I want to talk about is with the character of Skell, because, you know, he's not a character that on the surface we would assume has this really great artistic expression. Um, And it's, it's really wonderful in the moment in the show where we get to see what are the artistic pieces that he's creating? What is his voice as an artist? um, And what are the things inside of him that he's expressing? And so I was really interested in um, how you kind of conceptualized and saw his voice as a creative, and then also came up with the pieces that we then get to see on screen as a result of that. So yeah, so Skell is this, is this, you know, he is our boogeyman of the DMZ. Um, his lore kind of sort of proceeds wherever he goes. Um, but in truth, I really wanted to delve into what that actually means at a time of war and how growing up in this island um, could have really squashed who he really was, right? He's been made, you know, he's been taken under the wing of Parco, under Benjamin Bratt's character, and he's been made to be a soldier, a soldier at war, a soldier in wartime. And in a lot of ways, that stunted his own development, right? So he is this sort of muscled, scary guy, but he lives at the end of a pier, jutting out into the Hudson, as far away from the DMZ you can be inside the DMZ in his own private Idaho, where he gets to be himself. Um, and, you know, that that's one of the ideas that I think, um, I think is pervasive throughout the show is who are these people really and who have they become in this land? Um, but I really wanted to kind of make that aspect of Skell's life very intimate, very personal, you know, uh, and also, you know, there's a mural of himself um, on the wall. You can imagine he's only had pictures of himself to reference. Um, but yeah, so that, that was the idea of just making him, making him soft and almost stunted and underdeveloped, um, you know, giving him a lot, a lot more track to go. Yeah. And in, in talking a little bit more about the overall visual language of the show, it's got such a distinctive style. And even, mm-hmm. you know, with everything that you were describing before about the different areas, you know, they've each got their own really unique identities in terms of visually how we see them on screen as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and you had the great chance to, you know, you're working alongside Ava DuVernay, who directed mm-hmm. the first episode, and then Ernest Dickinson, who um, directed the rest of the episodes. And so what were a lot of the key visual details that you started um, interlaying into the scripts and then how did that then continue and evolve in the conversations that you started having with the two of them once they came on board to also direct these episodes? Sure. Well, uh, there's a lot of um, mechanical details that that uh, I was very intentional about. For one, this world is very colorful. You know, this world is not blue and gray and dreary. Um, and you know, that was, that was a a very kind of intentional detail to just speak to the life that has found a way here. Um, the other, uh, another sort of technical aspect is that the show does not shy away from big scopey shots. Um, but it, and while we have access to shooting 360 degrees, uh, the, the camera really lives on our characters' 
face. You know, there is a cinema verite feel to, to the experience because it needs to be super personal. Um, the story is incredibly personal. And, um, you know, so you have the scope that, that, that we showcase, uh, but for the most part, the background exists and is accurate, but is almost thrown away, right? We're with Rosario, we're with Benjamin, we're with our characters. Um, that was a, a very specific stylistic choice. Um, and, you know, uh, was that, was that, I, I hope I, I answered the question. Yeah, yeah, no, you really yeah. did. Um, in terms of, of the overall narrative structure, you know, you're telling this as a limited series as, as four mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah. And I've heard you mention previously that The Wire was a really influential show in terms of what you saw in terms of the scope of what you can do narratively. And also that idea that you can have moments that don't have full resolutions to them if it's done in the right way and for the right reason. And that was a great example of it in a series, you know, and, and this kind of feels a little bit reminiscent of that as well. You know, there's, there's moments that by the end of the series really tie themselves up and there's certain things that feel a little bit more emotionally open-ended for characters, but Mm -hmm. it's all done in the right way. That feels very satisfying for the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how did you, how do you kind of navigate as a, as a writer and as a creator and as a showrunner, figuring out where you need to be able to lead certain narrative arcs towards certain resolutions and then finding spaces where you can leave things a little bit more open-ended because that's right. much more true to life as well. You know, not everything gets tied up in a bow at the end of the day for people. Right. Well, you know, like I said at the beginning that the show, you know, the most macro idea of the show is that it's about the reclamation of, of a new America, right? It's, a, it, it's about the reclamation of, of this broken land um, and having it come together and having all these people of disparate walks of life um, unite, right? Uh, to, to that end, I think leaving certain stories open-ended um, was a necessity because you wanted to leave the audience, or at least I wanted to leave the audience, looking forward, ideating on what was next, because that's the hopefulness that comes um, from Alma's story. Uh, The other side of that is it's a very big world. It's a very complicated world. You know, you've got the war on the outside, which is complicated in of itself. You've got the idea of a DMZ within the DMZ of politics and, and rival gangs and this election that's coming up. There's layers upon layers upon layers. And in that whole sort of, uh, you know, nightmarish paradigm of, of context, I really needed to distill the story into as simple a thread as possible. So part of the open-ended um, storylines is a result of focusing on Alma's story and, and staying, you know, as as true to that as possible as focused on that as possible um you know you want that one resolved but by virtue of the fact that there are are narrative tendrils that's you know come out of that um you know that's just going to be a byproduct of of what you of what you get when you focus on one singular story um but yeah i think i think it is you know you mentioned the wire that to me is the the crown jewel of television um, and, you know, as for DMZ, 
the, the show is about looking forward. Um, we start at the nadir of society and start rebuilding, right? And so you want to really kind of give that that an upward trajectory and leave it at that. Yeah. And, and with the fact that, like you were saying, it is all about coming back to the character of Alma, coming back to Rosario's character yes. at every moment. Um, was that a huge influence in a lot of the choices that you made once you went into post-production and once you were editing and really sitting there and being like, well, what is the most compelling moment of this scene? What's the most compelling element of the story here in front of me, you know, in finding those ways for always to come back to her, even if it, the scope does kind of get a little bit bigger for certain scenes and then come mm -hmm. back down to her in a more grounded element by the end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, every, um, every narrative tentpole beat in this series is where is Alma at? What does Alma need? And where is Alma going? All of it. And there's there's a whole slew of, of secondary storylines um, that duck and weave around that, uh, but she is what drives the show. In fact, I, uh, I told you, I, I knew I wanted to build out the character of Z. I wanted to give her a first, middle, and last name. And in a lot of ways, I wanted to sort of create an origin story for Z, um, really capturing the spirit of the character in the, in the graphic novel. Um, I pictured Rosario Dawson from day one. I wrote this character with her in mind. I wrote this character for her. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, that was maybe one of the more terrifying moments of my life when I had, you know, these four scripts done and, you know, I went to sit down, I had a zoom with her, um, and I was like, Hey, this character is you, it's only you. And will you please be in it? Uh, you know, thankfully she, she saw what I saw and she said, yes, but yeah, it's been Alma, excuse me. It's been Rosario Dawson from day one. Um, She's just such an incredible, undeniable presence. Uh, you know, the story calls for her to go to some pretty profound places, I think, that can otherwise feel canned or untrue. Um, and she, you know, she just digs deep. She digs deep and really pushes herself to, to elevate the material in that capacity and to make all those, those very raw moments sing. Absolutely. It's, it's a really, really great performance. And, and, and lastly, in terms of kind of your overall career trajectory and, and the fact that you're now the person kind of heading up writers rooms, hiring yes. people and creating that space for other people um, within the crew, you know, early in your career, you got the opportunity to work with David Iyer when he was working on street Kings and right. kind of described him as someone who was a really great mentor and gave you a lot of autonomy and space to kind of make certain choices and to do certain things creatively, even though that was when you were first coming into the industry and, and yes. similarly in working on Sons of Anarchy with Kurt Sutter as well, it sounds like he's someone who really gave you a lot of autonomy in your career as well. Um, and so having had experiences like that and people who've been real mentorship figures to you at different stages in your career, what's the way in which you now think about it being on the other side of that where you're the person creating that space and, and working to enfranchise the people that are working for you, particularly the writer's room, having come up through that space yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a great question and it's something I, you know, carry with me certainly and, and have a very, uh, present sensitivity, uh, for that idea of, of, you know, nurturing from within. Um, 
you know, uh, just starting from the top, uh, David Ayer really let me, I was his intern on Street Kings uh, for a summer. And he let me shoot the behind the scenes for the, for the show, the, the BT, BTS. Um, and so I had free reign on the set. Forrest Whitaker, Hugh Laurie was there. Chris Evans was on it, uh, which was to me as a 22 year old, insane. So I was walking around with the camera, you know, pointing, clicking wherever he wanted me to. Moving forward on Sons of Anarchy, I joined that as a staff writer, which in, in television is the sort of bottom rung um, writer. And that was such a well-oiled machine. Um, and I think Kurt was at a point where he was, you know, he knew where the show was going, um, but he had these two kind of interstitial seasons of season five and season six, where he knew how season six was going to end, but the rest was needed to be sort of judged up, uh, conjured. And so he was in a place where he was putting more um, trust and emphasis on the writer's room, which was an amazing opportunity for me. And I mean, he talked about a producing boot camp. He just sort of said, go make your episode. So that was the first time I was in a prep meeting. I was in a production meeting. I was on a scout and that was, you know, basically learning to swim uh, by diving into the ocean. Moving forward from that, um, you know, the, there was the, the bastard executioner uh, which was Kurt's follow-up show, which only went one season, but he plucked me, uh, you know, and said, okay, hire the writers and run the room again. No, no real guidance, except I guess all the guidance you need, which is just do it. Um, so I learned and I did. Uh, and then we went to Wales, we shot the show. I, you know, one scene called for 200 horsemen on a beach. And that was the moment where I learned nobody knows anything. Cause you get the scene and you're like, how do we do this? And that's literally the question you ask at the production meeting. How do we do this? And everybody looks and they're like, well, shoot, I don't know. How do we do this? Uh, and then somebody's like, maybe we should call the, the game of Thrones horse team. They're in Ireland. Maybe the devil's horsemen, maybe they can come down. Yeah. Okay. I'll give them a call. Uh, you know, and suddenly a week later, you've got 200 horsemen um, uh, on a beach. Moving that, we went to Westworld, and that was basically my whole experience just on a whole nother level, but everybody's asking the same questions, right? You, you're dealing with these insane level of, this insane level of scope, and it, it all just boils down to the group of, of heads of department that you have, where you're just like, how do we do this? How do we have a little boy's face? open up to reveal the inner workings of a robot underneath, you know, how do we shoot a, you know, civil war era fort in the middle of Simi Valley uh, or Santa Clarita? Um, you, you just ask the questions and ask the questions and ask the questions. And in time you start building into it. I think, so I think to me, all of those experiences really led me to this now where a, it's critical to empower the writers. B, you know, you learn by doing. And C, you just ask the questions and surround yourselves with people who want to know, who want to do, and who are down to commit. You know, and that's really, really it, you know. Um, so it's been 
it's been amazing kind of building DMZ, uh, you know, conjuring it up on the computer and then building it um, in practice, in post and in, pra in, in, in our practical shoot. Um, but yeah, I would say where I'm at is certainly a compendium of my experiences um, and how I was sort of schooled is fundamentally about saying thank you and saying good job and keeping you know, the people who do good by you close and, and you know, rewarding them with more responsibility and, and more opportunity. That's really, really wonderful to hear. And, you know, I want to say huge congratulations on this series. It's, it's such a great piece of storytelling. And thank you so much for talking all about it. Really appreciate your time today, Roberta. Oh, I so, uh, I so appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun.